welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rosher, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the latest edition of our podcast series, Arbitral Insights. This indeed is the first episode of 2023, and I'd like to, at the very outset, express huge thanks and appreciation to my colleague, Lucy Reed, who has been instrumental in helping us set up this series. I'm joined today by two of my partners, Sachin Kirur, based in our Dubai office, and Timothy Cook, based in our Singapore office. Hi there, Gautam. Hi, Gautam. It's, it's great to be speaking to you. I know I speak to you often, uh, but I've never done a podcast with the two of you, so I'm looking forward to this one. The theme of today's podcast is to focus with the expertise and insights from both Sachin and Timothy on the Middle East and Singapore as hubs for India or Indian-related arbitration. And both of these jurisdictions are ones that I know well. Uh, I've done arbitration hearings in Dubai over the years, and I was based in Singapore for approximately three and a half years, uh, from 2012 to 2015. The Middle East and Singapore are both very important hubs for India-related business and transactions. And they've become very important hubs for for India-related disputes subject to resolution by arbitration. And it's fair to say that most disputes involving Indian parties and Indian transactions are resolved by arbitration. In this podcast, we are going to get the views from both Sachin and Timothy on India-related arbitration from their regional perspectives. We're also recording this podcast on India's Republic Day. It's the 74th Republic Day, so that's also rather auspicious and, uh, you know, that's also something that's worth mentioning in this podcast. Um, India is now the world's fifth biggest economy, and it is set to grow and grow. It has been the focus for a lot of, of investment over the years from overseas. And Indian companies have also invested extensively in many overseas jurisdictions. And as with so many things, where there's investment and transactional activity, disputes are a fact of commercial life. Those disputes with Indian entities or involving Indian projects and transactions are invariably, as I mentioned, resolved by arbitration and not by litigation in India or in local courts overseas. Now, a major reason for that is that the New York Convention of 1958 is extremely powerful and effective for the enforcement of awards across jurisdictions. And another is that parties want to avoid having big delays in the court process, either in India or overseas. Apart from London, two other major centres for arbitration are Singapore and the Middle East, where Indian parties or transactions are involved. And that's why we thought this podcast would be an opportune time for us to look at these 
points with our audience. And so having lit the touch paper, so to speak, I wanted to get the discussion going with uh, Sachin and Timothy and get their views. And so I mean, let me start off, first of all, with you, Timothy, in terms of arbitration in Singapore. Singapore, of course, is a very well-established centre now and very well known for dealing with arbitration involving Indian parties. Tell us a little bit about how arbitration in, in Singapore has developed where Indian business is involved. Thanks, Gautam. I, I think that what you've said already in relation to the amount of Indian investment is part of the, the story. I think if you look over the last 20 years or so, I think something around 15% of the total FDI into India has come from Singapore. And around nine to 10,000 Indian companies have been set up in Singapore in that time. And so you know, huge amounts of economic activity have ta- has taken place. But particularly in the last 20 years, what we've seen is a concerted effort, I think, particularly by the Singapore International Arbitration Centre, but I think also to some extent as the Singapore arbitration community has has grown and developed. There has been a a real effort to attract Indian-related disputes, and that has been through um, the promotion of institutionalised arbitration in India in, in particular. So whereas traditionally, I think, Indian disputes would either be litigated in India or international disputes might be litigated in London or arbitrated in London, or perhaps um, other domestic disputes be possibly arbitrated on an ad hoc basis. I think what the SIAC and the LCIA had done very successfully was to introduce uh, and perhaps highlight the benefits of institutionalised arbitration. And that, I think, is reflected in the SIAC caseloads. So if you look at those, the annual statistics that are published by the SIC, I think it's it's fair to say that India is the top nationality or one of the top nationalities for parties arbitrating in SIC. I think it's anything from 20 to 40% every year. So I think there's there's been that, I don't know if education is the right word, but, but that level of proselytizing in India has caught the attention of a lot of Indian um, businesses. I think faced with the difficulties of litigating in India, where I think, as we know, it takes a very, very long time, you know, there's this opportunity maybe to have disputes resolved outside that process in a more efficient way has become very attractive. I mean, even to the extent that now we see uh, quite commonly in, in Singapore disputes between two Indian parties, they might even also be governed by Indian law, but they're arbitrated in Singapore. And I think it's that progression over the last 15 years or so has had this sort of effect of, of, I suppose, confidence in in the Singapore system. But I think it it is largely a lot of those efforts that are offering this this different way of resolving disputes, which has has caused it to be so successful. But I also think that that it's, it's not just something that benefits Singapore. I suspect that it's something that may benefit other institutions as well, because now that in India you have um, an understanding and appreciation for the possibilities and benefits of arbitration, you now have you know other institutions who are also marketing you know their their services 
in India, they may not necessarily be seated in Singapore. You even have domestic institutions like the MCIA, who have been rapidly growing. I think their most recent statistics show they've had a 20% increase on their own caseload. So it's a real game changer, I think, in terms of resolving commercial disputes in India. Thank you, Timothy. You know, and as you mentioned with uh, the SIAC, I mean, they are, I mean, they've been prolific. I mean, they're now the second most important arbitral institution globally, and the rise of the SIAC has been quite extraordinary. We'll return to some of the themes you mentioned there shortly. I just want to turn to Sachin now, if I may, and if I could just ask you to sort of set the scene as to why you, Sachin, think that the Middle East has also become such an important place for parties to consider for arbitration where Indian parties or transactions are involved. Thank you, Gautam, and thank you, Tim. Look, I think we're all on the same page when it comes to recognising the appetite of Indian businesses for foreign arbitration. Um, You've both touched on the why around the need for a neutral territory to arbitrate, especially if foreign parties are involved, and the how, which relates to India's ratification of the New York Convention. The where is, of course, very interesting. And I think Tim made the very uh, pertinent point that the SIAC, for example, has pitched to the Indian market very effectively over some time. I think as far as the Middle East goes, it's probably right. We're, we're coming from slightly behind, but actually from a historic perspective, if I just take you back to even before the formation of the UAE, uh, India and the UAE were very strong trading partners. Uh, well before the oil boom here in the 60s. And of course, uh, as nations, that that history of commerce dating back centuries has only flourished since the UAE became a federation in in, uh, in 1971. So I I, I think what we now are, are very clear about is that India is a a tremendously important trading partner for, for the UAE. And the UAE is a tremendously important trade partner for India. I mean, the stats are speak for themselves. Uh, in 21, I believe India was the uh, UAE's second biggest trading partner after China. And, and in the last 12 months, uh, the UAE is India's third last, largest trading partner. And bilateral trade between the two is set to surpass $100 billion. And that has been very apparent in the cooperation between governments. And last year, the UAE and India entered into their comprehensive economic partnership agreement to boost trade in, in goods and services over the next uh, five years. And this is the first bilateral trade agreement signed by the UAE uh, and the first trade agreement in the MENA region signed by India. So all of this um, hopefully is a sign of um, how impactful the Middle East is for Indian businesses. And of course, that will then have the, you asking us the follow on question, Kotam, as to, you know, where Indian businesses can then decide to yeah. uh, uh, place their disputes and which institutions, because now they have, you know, territories outside of India, both in Singapore, both the Middle East, which are very uh, convenient and extremely well-trodden paths for Indian business. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's one of the interesting things because travel-wise, as we know, uh, the UAE, if we just take the, the UAE, it's about a two and a half hour plane journey to Mumbai. Mm. Singapore is about a five hour, four and a half hour, five hours 
from Singapore to Mumbai. And time zone wise, there's only an hour and a half difference between the Middle East uh, and India. And uh, with Singapore, there's only two and a half hours time difference. So uh, there's obviously those uh, advantages as well, geographic advantages. I mean, let me ask you this, Hatchin, just as a quick follow up, and then I'll turn back to Timothy. In terms of the the places uh, where arbitration uh, would often take place in the Middle East region, we obviously know that Dubai is a very mature center for arbitration. And we've heard of the DIFC, etc. You know, again, very well established. But uh, apart from Dubai, what are your thoughts on the other regional centres who are vying for some of that action? Um, I'm referring here to Abu Dhabi. I'm referring to Saudi. Perhaps you could share your thoughts on that, please, Sachin. Yeah, I think it's it's a, a very uh, exciting period for dispute resolution in the regional marketplace because we have this incredible menu now of options um, built around some very strong legislative and other infrastructure uh, to support arbitration. And I think it, it is only a good thing that sharing the limelight with Dubai are centres that you have just referred to. And we've seen the Saudi Arbitration Centre really become much more prominent over recent times. They've just opened an office here in the UAE. And that would obviously be consistent with the growth of economic activity in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So I think, just to answer your question a bit more directly, I think we have tremendous arbitral institutions now and I think we've got some great supportive infrastructure for arbitration. The UAE in particular I believe has everything that any world-class arbitration hub has to offer. We have you know very fast reliable smart city approaches to tech. Both Abu Dhabi and Dubai has the exceptional hotels to host arbitral hearings. The ADGM which you mentioned their arbitration centre has state-of-the-art services. We have world-class airports. So we are in a very good shape. And to the extent that you know, I, I consider it the, the restaurant menu of arbitration centres, I think that gives parties and their counsel um, you know, tremendous uh, opportunity and options when considering where best to uh, resolve any potential disputes going forward. Thank you, Sachin. And I'm not going to forget that um, expression now, the restaurant menu of arbitration options. I mean, I, I think that's brilliant. I'm, I'm not going to forget that one in a hurry, Sachin, I can tell you. Um, you know, Timothy, let me turn back to you and just, you know, turn back focus to Singapore for a short while. Singapore is obviously a really important hub for, for arbitration involving Indian parties and transactions. And uh, you you interestingly mentioned a moment ago uh, about how Indian parties, well, both parties, both sides, might have their arbitration resolved uh, in Singapore and, and governing law being Indian law. And uh, yeah, and I've seen that trend as well. And of course, there was a very famous case involving Amazon not too long ago involving um, an emergency award, which has been very well publicized. But in terms of um, the sorts of disputes that you see being most commonly dealt with by arbitration in Singapore involving Indian parties, what are those areas, please? Well, again, I think that that, that um, 
the shape of those disputes has changed over time. Um, I think if you were to go back maybe 10, 15 years, then it was quite common to see international trade disputes, you know, commodity disputes of raw materials and that sort of thing being arbitrated at the SIC or the ICC. And I would have said that those sorts of disputes were relatively low value. And I think that I don't know if there was a direct link between a large number of those sorts of cases that were coming through the institutions, um, as I say, maybe 10, 15 years ago, whether there's a link between that and the development of the expedited rules that the SIC developed and the ICC now has and and many other institutions. But I think that there there is a link there that they were to help cater for those uh, relatively small disputes, I say that sort of sub $5 million. Uh, and to provide a, a fast track process to allow those um, to be resolved quickly. And I think that was um, a lot of what we used to see uh, at, at that time. But I, I think it's changed. Uh, a couple of things have happened. I think that, um, I mean, you mentioned emergency arbitration. I think the uh, there's been a, a symbiotic relationship really between the development of emergency arbitration of the SIC rules and the Indian court's enthusiasm uh, and ingenuity, frankly, in finding ways to enforce those awards. So um, yeah, the, yeah, was a, there was a well-known case many years ago, HSBC and Avatel, first case where there'd been an emergency arbitration award made in Singapore, and uh, it was subsequently enforced in India by way of Section 9 of the Arbitration Act. And that has become the way, as you probably know, Katam, of, of enforcing um, awards in India, particularly emergency mm-hmm. arbitration awards. Yeah. And the courts have been very creative in, in, in doing that. So there was another case uh, a few years ago um, called, I think it's Plus Holdings, I think, um, an example where an emergency arbitrator um, granted a, a mandatory injunction, again, took it to the um, Indian courts and, and they enforced it. They effectively fashioned their own relief that gave um, the same effect. Um, and much more recently, the Amazon case, the Amazon Future Retail case, where the Supreme Court in India has has upheld the legitimacy of emergency arbitration in India. And the result of all of that has been a lot of confidence in people um, choosing Singapore uh, and and Singapore arbitration for India-related disputes because there's a confidence that if they do need emergency relief, they can get it in a Singapore emergency arbitration, and more importantly, they can get it enforced in India. And the statistics are quite interesting. I think there's been about 140 or so emergency arbitrations since 2010, over 80 of those have involved Indian-related parties. That's sort of over 60%. So that's been a really interesting semiotic um, development of, the, of, of that of that feature of arbitration. So that has dealt with you know, a lot of those smaller cases. But I think what you see, what we are definitely seeing, is a clear, significant trend that not just those smaller value disputes, but now much larger disputes are being arbitrated in Singapore where they involve, um, you know, some sort of Indian aspect, be it an Indian project or, or Indian parties. And I think that maybe historically, you might have expected to see those either litigated in India or possibly in London or possibly in arbitration in London. But we're now seeing those things resolved in Singapore. That, I think, is a function of people just being more familiar with Singapore. It's no longer the nuclear on the block. Um, it's seen as a, you know, trusted and, and supportive of the process. So, you know, you do now see these much bigger cases. There's been sort of big pharmaceutical cases, well-known pharmaceutical cases um, that have been reported in India that were simple arbitrations. I think technology um, and, you know, as, as these 
sophisticated Indian companies which are selling technological expertise around the world. I think they are um, very often um, choosing Singapore to arbitrate um, their disputes. And I think renewables, um, again, we're seeing huge amounts of solar panels being bought from China into India to, to satisfy the, the ambitious goals that the Indian government has set for increasing its renewables capacity. And of course, again, you know, there's always going to be a portion of those that are going to be in dispute. And again, we're seeing all of those um, being resolved in Singapore. So I think that there has been a change over time. Uh, and it's a, it's a function, I think, of what um, Singapore, to some extent, the SIC as, as well, um, have offered to try to meet um, users' needs. Thank you, Timothy. And, you know, one of the things I'd like to put to both of you is that, and this is where we get into a little bit of good-humoured, good-natured intellectual jousting between the three of us. So let's assume we're talking to a client about options and leaving London to one side. And we're thinking about the Middle East and Singapore. What would each of you say are the respective benefits of each of those jurisdictions. So Sachin, I could start with you, please. So if you could address your thoughts on the benefits of arbitrating in the Middle East. Yeah, I think, yeah, for Indian businesses, if they're based in the UAE or in the region here and have assets here, I think there's nothing that should deter them from keeping arbitrations seated here because of you know, some of the uh, benefits I mentioned earlier in terms of the infrastructure and and the range of of um, options, and they can choose the financial free zones of the UAE or onshore Dubai or Abu Dhabi. So I think it makes perfect sense. I think uh, for Indian businesses based in India who are just looking for a neutral jurisdiction outside of India to see arbitrations, then you know I I would have to concede that at present Singapore. Uh, would have the upper hand. And I, I, I think from one perspective, I think this is due to uh, a, a bit of a loophole in India's arbitration law that although both India and the UAE are parties to the New York Convention, uh, India has made a reservation when entering that uh, to the effect it would only apply the Convention for Recognition and Enforcement for awards made in the territory of a state that's party to the Convention. So that, that bit's not problem. The problem is that in India's Domestic Arbitration Act, a foreign award uh, is defined as an award made in a territory that the Indian government um, is satisfied as to reciprocal provisions by notification in the Gazette. And bizarrely, although UAE is a party to the convention and the UAE courts do enforce Indian awards, the Indian government hasn't declared the UAE as a territory to which the convention applies. So I think you know, all, all cards on the table, what, what it means that, you know, if an Indian party who currently chooses a UA seat um, wants to enforce will back home in India, there will be obstacles. Now, I, I know that Indian courts have considered novel, uh, slightly alternative routes to enforcement of foreign awards from non-notified countries, but judgments are inconsistent. So, you know, as a firm, Reed Smith have, have, have set up a working group to um, address um, this issue and, and take that up with leading stakeholders. But I don't want that necessarily uh, to to kind of uh, 
uh, obviate the consideration of the UAE or the Middle East, because I, I think it's only a matter of time before this is this legal lacuna is is resolved. And I, 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 I am obviously uh, understandably, and I'm sure you won't yeah. be surprised <laughs> about the positivity of our virtues as a hub. So uh, yeah, I, I, I would say that you know for the reasons set out earlier in this chat, uh, notwithstanding that that issue I've just mentioned. Uh, we we are we are coming fast on on the heels of of Tim, and and colleagues in Singapore. Yeah, it's getting exciting, isn't it? Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, you know, Tim. You know, what's your thoughts about uh, some of the benefits of arbitrating in Singapore? I know you've touched on a few, but um, you know, just sort of tell us your thoughts on that, please. Yeah, I, I think that perhaps the key benefit which is which can be looked at in various different ways but i think that in singapore you have very consciously an integrated arbitration ecosystem and it's interesting you know what sachin has been saying about um the development of uae as an arbitration hub and i think it's following in you know the similar footsteps and i think in in that sense you know, is undoubtedly going to be successful because i think that integrated approach where you have um a supportive um, legislature and a supportive, supportive judiciary together with a sort of fairly, fairly vibrant um, uh, council seat means that you know everyone is rowing in the, in the right direction and you can see that in the way in which Singapore first of all has um, adopted a, a new arbitration rule back in 1994 and has gone through a number of um, amendments to that to cater for various different things. So it's really interesting. You know, I spoke earlier about emergency arbitration. Um, Singapore was certainly the first country in the world to bake into its arbitration laws recognition of um, uh, enforcement of emergency arbitration awards. And that's a relatively controversial issue, uh, or, or certainly wasn't controversial issue when emergency arbitration was first popularised. Um, but, but Singapore has sort of taken that step. Similarly, with something like expedited arbitration, which we were discussing earlier, you know, there had been in the past some concern about where you have an arbitration agreement that provides for three arbitrators, but then your arbitration rules say that an expedited arbitration is to be conducted by a sole arbitrator, then is there then an enforcement problem further down the line? Um, because it, it might be said that the award was not um, made in accordance with the party's chosen procedure. And uh, again, what the Singapore courts have found is that, that no, that, that that's, they're not inconsistent and, and, and such an award is enforceable. So again, you know, you've got the, everyone is sort of holding hands in Singapore, making sure that every, everything works. And there is a constant state of, I think, of review of, of the laws uh, to make sure that they remain attractive. So I think that I think that's a key thing. And because Singapore has been doing it for 25 odd years now, you know, there is that confidence that goes with it. And to the extent that, for example, the UAE may, you know, Sajjan said, you know, hot, hot on the heels of Singapore, I think that's probably right. It's, it may be um, further back at the moment, but it's that approach will, I think, lead to the same conclusion. I think lots of lots of seats have looked to Singapore to try to figure out what was in the magic source that's made, made it work. And I suspect that's part of the answer. Thanks, Timothy. And look, I've got nothing I can't resist. You know, first Sachin mentioned a, a restaurant menu of arbitration options, and now you've mentioned the secret sauce. So I think we've got a theme running here, haven't we? But no, thank you very much indeed. 
that's really, really helpful. And I'm going to come back to, to enforcement in a bit because uh, I want to ask you both now about challenges to in arbitrating because, of course, there are many good points in terms of arbitrating in a variety of places. But, of course, we're focusing here on, on Indian arbitrations or Indian parties arbitrating and having their arbitrations dealt with in either Singapore or the Middle East. And we've spoken about, as you both have, the benefits ranging from infrastructure, be it hotels, airports, rules, arbitrators, etc. But one of the things, as we all know on this in the, this discussion, is that when it comes to enforcing an award, that can often be a challenging time, no pun intended. And I wonder whether you could each address some of these enforcement issues, like things that, you know, just a few things our clients ought to be mindful of. I mean, Sachin, if I could start with you, uh, please, because historically, I know there's often been, I've spoken to clients myself about in the past where, you know, there might be a challenge to an award in the UAE, and there might be a risk of a of local law getting involved be it Sharia law or otherwise. So I, I wonder whether you could just address some of the practical issues that might arise for clients when looking to enforce an award in the UAE. Yeah, of course, Gotham. Um, in 2018, um, the UAE passed a landmark arbitration law like Singapore's based on the Instra model and aligned with best practice for, for commercial arbitration. And, and that, of course, includes rules governing the tribunals uh, and limiting court intervention throughout proceedings. And, and, and then the UAE issued a, a cabinet decision concerning the executive regulations of the UAE civil procedural law. And that was an incredibly welcome update to the law at the time because it brought clarity to the enforcement procedure, both for uh, foreign judgments, orders and arbitral awards. So. These key pieces of legislation have certainly helped uh, the UAE emerge as a much more arbitration-friendly jurisdiction. I would just pick up on a couple of um, challenges we face, because that's that's only fair in this this discussion. Um, As much as, of course, I, I, I mentioned the virtue of the options that we have, of course, that may well cause parties to be confused by by the range of options um, and therefore it's 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 absolutely essential to take special advice as to you know what that what those options provide I, I think the thing that sometimes causes concern is perhaps the language of our onshore courts and the UAE arbitration law uh, which is of course Arabic and that the onshore courts may have um, this exclusive jurisdiction over proceedings seated on the onshore UAE seats, be that onshore Dubai or Abu Dhabi. And yes, of course, that does mean that Arabic-speaking local courts would be involved in matters such as the issuance of, um, of uh, interim or precautionary measures, if, if, if that's been requested by the parties or the tribunal. Now, I, I think um, you know, the reality and, and, and you know, on the ground today is that you know parties are rarely resorting to the courts uh, to assist uh, in arbitration because of the comprehensive nature of the arbitration law and rules that now apply. And, and so I think there's less scope for confusion or the gray areas that might have prompted court intervention in the past. Um, and, and Tim mentioned 
that those that that in the case of emergency arbitrator provisions and so forth. I think in any case, to to be fair, if parties are overly concerned about the need to seek support from courts for interim measures, then you have the DIFC with its own English-speaking common law style court, and that's a very simple solution. Um, and in fact, the DIFC is now the default seat under the new DIAC rules, and it's a tried and tested supervisory court for arbitration. So I think some of the concerns are certainly those we would uh, suggest could be put to one side. And we are now seeing the UAE is a very sophisticated and reputable hub for international arbitration for, for those reasons. So, I, you know, whilst one doesn't dismiss concerns easily, I think um, I, I hope I've sort of been able to suggest yeah. that that we, we, we're a lot more forward today than, than, than some time ago. You certainly have. No, no, thank you, Sachin. That's been very, very helpful. And, you know, just, Tim, as we now wrap up uh, the podcast, just in closing, I wonder whether you could briefly just touch on some challenges that people ought to be aware of for uh, enforcement of awards in Singapore. Yeah, sure. I, I think that the reality is that it's almost notoriously hard now to challenge an award in Singapore. I think the success rate is lower than 15% now, um, although those numbers might be skewed because many people tend to have a go, you know, at challenging an award here in Singapore, uh, even if the merits might not be very strong. Um, but it is difficult. And I, I think there's been a, a shift in the last few years. I think people have uh, been focusing on uh, natural justice grounds to challenge awards. And I think as a result, Singapore now has a lot of developed jurisprudence on, on you know, when you can bring a claim uh, and when you can succeed in set aside an award on natural justice grounds, and and, and perhaps unsurprisingly, um, the courts have been careful to tightly confine um, when that's possible. So I think that you know if, if one's looking to enforce an award here in Singapore, uh, you do look at the the model law grounds. Um, they are strictly um, adhered to. We do have two additional grounds in Singapore, but they're essentially. Um, elaborations of the public policy um, uh, ground under the New York Convention for Enforcement um, of, of Foreign Awards. Um, but I, I thought it might be worth just touching for a second on enforcement in India, um, because a, a lot of what um, happens is that we might act in cases where we need to get some sort of either final relief um, through enforcing the award or interim relief in India itself. Uh, and I think the reality is that it doesn't really matter whether the arbitration is seated in Singapore or Dubai or elsewhere. The reality is it takes time, and that's just a product of the of the Indian um, court system. Uh, I think that, that, that it's fair to say that ultimately the right answer has arrived at, but it's just that it's the time it takes to get there. There have been obviously cases like uh, White Industries case where it has taken so long that a, um, a party has claimed that their award is an investment and has brought a claim against the Indian state. It's a sort of rare and, and perhaps uh, more desperate way to try and achieve uh, that result. Um, but there are those instances where parties do try to find ways to get round the, the amount of time it takes to enforce. But that's, you know, I think the, in terms of practical advice there, I think it's really important to get Indian counsel on board early. And by early, I mean early in the arbitration, not after you've got the award, because in my experience, getting advice as you go along on issues as they arise, it can be very useful to get input so that 
you can you can develop an enforcement strategy almost as you go along. So by the time you've got your award, you know where some of the difficulties might line up, and you've already um, tried to account for those in the course of the proceedings. So I think that's something I would say um, is very useful, and, and that we've done in the past, and it it, it it helped to smoothen the path to enforcement. Thank you, Timothy. That's very very helpful. Well, my thanks to you both, Sachin and Timothy, for a really interesting discussion. And I, I'm sure our listeners are going to find it equally as interesting. So thank you both very much and see you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the ReadSmith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on ReadSmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, ReadSmith.com, and our social media accounts at ReadSmithLLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.